So, if the uh, microphone was stuck in your face, how would you answer the question? Kind of a hard question. When I think of my time of working with students, I realize that a lot of students found their identity in like three different areas that kind of come right out of a scripture in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord. And um, what I saw is, and what I say to kids, you can find your identity in, in one of these three things, beauty, brains, or bucks. Beauty is the strength one. For guys, it's uh, athleticism. For girls, it's their good looks. And sometimes there's a combination of athleticism and looks, and that's a bonus, and they find their identity in that. For others, it's not about their looks. It's not about their athleticism. It's about their brain, and they're smart, and they're at the top of the class, and that's their identity, and that's where they find their security. And then there's some students that have neither that. Uh, they don't have the brains, and they may not have the, uh, the good looks and athleticism, but what they have is they got money. They got bucks, and uh, that gives you status and identity. Now, we're a little more sophisticated as we grow older. And I know you can't generalize everyone, but I'd say it's safe to say that for most of the women here, uh, your identity is often found in relationships. I mean, we guys notice that when we walk into a, a place like Cool Beans and, and we see you sharing a cup of coffee. It's intense. Like when two women get together for coffee, I mean, their bodies are leaning in. and I mean, it's just that. It's deep. It's this deep sharing. And you know uh, that your identity is shaped by relationships often when you lose those relationships. Maybe uh, someone's moved away or you've lost a friend. Or you find yourself moving away. Oftentimes it hits women even in this whole empty nest syndrome when the kids are gone, the relationships you have, your identity's formed around those relationships. For guys, for us, it's so often what we do, our work, our accomplishments. And we know that that's a place where we find our identity. When we lose it, we lose our job. Oh man, that is hard. That's why for many men, Retirement is not an easy transition because so much of who we are is wrapped into what we do as men. Well, the text this morning as we start our series in the book of Ephesians takes us to kind of these deeper kinds of questions. Uh, The big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? These questions are in the text, but there's a a unique twist to it. It's not like the text puts a a microphone in my face or your face. It it actually is like the Apostle Paul says, Hey, Door Creek Church, I got a question for you. Who are you? Who are you as a church? Who are we as a people of God? Why are we here? Why are you here, Paul says? Where are you heading? Where are we going? And what the text tells us today is simply this. That when our identity is rooted in Christ, we become a church that overflows with praise. 
When our identity is rooted in Christ, we overflow with praise. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. You'll find it on page 827. Now, this is going to be our first book study that we do together. And it's important for me, and it's important for you, that you have a Bible. So bring your Bible. I know it's up on the screen. Bring your Bible. Get your pen and paper out. Write some of this stuff down so that you can keep thinking about this and let this word change it. You came here without a Bible. You don't own a Bible. There's Bibles in the, in the chairs in front of you. Take that home. We'd love you to have it. Okay? All right, we got our Bibles open. Verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 1, page 827. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Here's the background of the book. We know the author. It's a guy named Paul. He's called an apostle. What's that word mean? It means he's been commissioned with a message. The message is what he calls later on the good news. And as an apostle, he's been commissioned by God. It was his choosing, God's will, not his choosing. And we know a little bit about this guy named Paul. He used to be called Saul. And in Acts chapter 9, we find out that he had been commissioned by somebody else, religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of his day, and they had commissioned him with a message that was bad news, especially for those who were what they called of the way. That's how they characterized the early believers and followers of Christ. He had bad news for them, and basically his message that he was commissioned with was, if you don't turn away from Christ and his followings and his teachings, then I'm going to persecute you, beat you, and throw you in jail. Now he's got a completely different message. He's been commissioned by God with the good news. Who's he writing to, the audience? Well, he describes them as the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, the phrase in Ephesus is really not found in the earliest manuscripts. So most Bible scholars believe it was added later. And when you look at the nature of this book, it's not as personal as you would expect from a guy who spent three years in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19 tells a lot about the time he spent there. So most scholars believe that this is one of those letters that actually circulated to different places, perhaps Ephesus, maybe Laodicea, and some of the other places in that area. Modern-day Turkey is what we're talking about. Now, there's two words that he uses to describe these people, saints. Now, for a lot of us, we're thinking, aren't saints like dead people? He's writing to dead people? What's the deal with saints? Saints is a word that means set apart ones, set apart by God for God. They're they're people that God has set apart for his purposes. And when you think about that word saint, it actually shows us the trajectory of the first three chapters of this book because this book is about our identity in Christ, chapters 1 through 3. Saints points to that. This is who we are. We've been set apart by God for God. Faithful in Christ Jesus goes to the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, and it has to do with our mission for Christ, our identity in Christ, our mission. And so in those two words in his greeting, saints and faithful, I think he's showing us a little bit of how this book breaks down. Well, what is the purpose of this book? Why did he write it? Well, I think he wrote it 
Because he wants us, as Christ's followers, to live a life that's worthy of our calling. Why do I say that? Turn over to chapter 4, verse 1. This is where the book hinges. It moves from our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, to now living out that identity in all of life, in all the relationships we have. And what does he say in 4.1? As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Paul says he's a prisoner. He's probably in a Roman prison. And he says, here's what I hope for you. That you will live a life that measures up, that is worthy of the calling you have as Christ's followers. That's what I'm hoping and praying for you. Why was that important to Paul? It was important to Paul because he knew that after he left Ephesus in that region, there would be false teachers who'd come and would take people to an understanding that maybe Jesus isn't enough. Maybe I need Jesus plus something. So back in Acts chapter 20, verse um, 29, he writes this that helps us understand the importance of why he's writing the, the letter to the Ephesians, actually to the people in that area. Here's what he writes back in Acts 20. I know that after I leave, savage wolves, not talking about animals, but false teachers, Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. The flock is the metaphor for the people of God, the church. Even from your own number, he's talking now to these leaders of the church, the elders, even from among your own number, men will arise, and here's what they're going to do. They're going to distort the truth. Why? In order to draw away disciples after them. And so if they're following them, they're not following who? Jesus. And he's concerned about that. And that's why he says, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you inheritance among those who are sanctified to those who are set apart. And so our identity and our mission is found in Christ. When you saw the logo the title of this series, you see the cross going right through those words because it's at the heart of our identity, Christ, what he's done for us and accomplished for us on the cross. And our mission is all about furthering the work of Christ in this world. That's what we're doing. That's where we're going. And this portion of God's word reminds us that when we understand our identity, when it's rooted in Christ, the response is there's an overflow of praise. And that's the emotion that you have as you read through verses 3 through 14. Look at the very first words of verse 3. Praise be to God and Father. See it there? Look at the last words of verse 14. What do you see? It's all about to the praise of his glory. So from beginning to end, this section, which you won't believe it, it's actually one verse in the Greek, 202 words. Hey, students, can you imagine turning in a sentence that's 202 words long tomorrow to your English teacher? I mean, that thing is going to be so marked up with red and, and the repeating phrases, run on, run on, run on, fragment. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's all good for Paul. So he gives us this very long complicated section that is rooted in this is who we are, Door Creek Church. This is who we are. 
This is what we have in Christ, and this is why our lives should overflow in praise. So it begins back in verse 4 through 6, praising God for choosing us before this world was ever created, choosing us to be his children. So let's read it. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. The praise begins with an understanding of what God has done in the past. What has God done in the past? He's chosen us. He's predestined us to be his children. And that relationship of being his children is summarized in a phrase that happens 11 times in this passage. It's the phrase, in Christ, in him. It's kind of esoteric, mystical. What all does that mean? He describes this relationship that we have with Christ to be very similar to the relationship that we have in marriage. So at the end of chapter 5 of Ephesians, the same letter, he's describing a a husband leaving his father and mother and clinging, being united to his wife, and the two becoming one, one flesh. And he goes on to say, and this is a profound mystery, that two lives become one, physically, spiritually, emotionally, in marriage. We go, yeah, that is wild how that works. He says, but I'm not talking about that relationship. The mystery that blows our minds away is the relationship that our marriage is actually pointing to. It's the union between Jesus and the church, his followers. So to be in Christ describes this mysterious relationship that we experience through the Spirit with God's Son, Jesus Christ, all because of God's grace. And that's where it starts. It starts with this understanding that we've been chosen by God before this whole world was created, that we were predestined, that he chose us beforehand to actually be his sons and daughters. Why did he choose us? To be holy and blameless. Why did he choose us? So that we would enter into a relationship. That's why we were created, to know God, to enjoy him forever. Well, I don't know if you're here today and just trying to figure this whole thing out of Christianity. You're drawn back to the church, maybe because yeah, you want your kids to, to get some religious background and training. Right, it's really important for you to hear this morning that following Christ is not about a religion. It's fundamentally about a relationship that's as beautiful as the gracious relationship of being adopted by someone, not on the basis of anything we've done, but just because they chose to do it. And, and that's the driving question of this whole truth of God choosing us. Why? On what basis did God choose us before the creation of the world? Does it have something to do with me? 
Or is it all about him? Or is it a combination of the two? Now, all of us know something about being chosen. Remember when your kids, and maybe it was in the backyard with the neighborhood kids, and it was time to choose up sides? Maybe it was at school in the playground, or a lot of times it happened in gym class. The teacher said, all right, we're playing softball today. We're playing kickball today. Choose up sides. And, and some kid says, I want to be captain. So there's captains. And for the purpose of this illustration, we'll say one of them was a guy and one of them was a girl. Now, why would the, the boy captain, what, what would be the criteria for who he's choosing? I'll ask the guys, who are we choosing? The strong. We're going for the best players for this game because we want to what? All right, guys, that's good. I resonate. All right. Now, girls, when you were captain, who are you choosing? The best athlete or the best? There you go. All right. Now we're understanding each other better, aren't we? Relationships, performance. Okay, that's good. All right. Now, here's the deal. You moved into a new neighborhood. You came into a new school. Um, all of a sudden, we're choosing sides, and you're hoping what? You're hoping that you're not the last person chosen, right? Because, I mean, that's the worst, to be the last person chosen. How do we do it? Well, there, there was a reason we were doing it, wasn't there? And I guess the question is, is, is that how God did it? He, he looked at us, and, and he said, um, that guy, my fear, I, I, I I think he's got a lot going for him. I'd like him on my team. There's an interesting quote I ran across this week from a guy named Isaac Asimov. Maybe you've read some of his science fiction stuff. Here's what he says. If I were not an atheist, I'd believe in a God who would choose to save people on the basis of the totality of their lives and not the pattern of their words. I think he would prefer an honest and righteous atheist to a TV preacher whose every word is God, God, God and whose every deed is foul, foul, foul. And so the question is, is that how God does it? Is it on the basis of the pattern of words that we would one day utter, or is it knowing the totality of our lives that he would choose us? What does the text say? Why did God choose us? When you start digging around, you realize it doesn't say anything about us. What it says is everything about him. It says at the end of verse 4, what does it say there? How does verse 4 end? In love he predestined us. He chose us beforehand. It's because of who he is, his character, not because of who we are. That's what we just sang. It's because of who he is, not because of what we've done. You see, because before we are in Christ, we are actually described as, from the Bible's vantage point, being in Adam. That is, we are just like our first father who rebelled against God, fell out of relationship with God, and God knows who we are. And it's in spite of who we are and who we will be that he sets his affection on us. He chose us, the text says, because he loves us complete, unconditional love. He knew exactly what we were going to be like, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he chose us because he loves us. And he loves us in spite of who we are because he chose to. 
Oh, man, that sets in some really interesting tensions theologically and practically. Are you telling me then it's all God's choice and I'm just a robot? doesn't ma- matter what I think or believe? Well, hang on to that question because he's going to get to that very um, mysterious connection between God's sovereign choosing of us before we even existed, not on the basis of what we've done. In fact, Titus 3, 5 says, he saved us not on the basis of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. It's because of that. But we're going we're gonna to get to this whole tension and see it somewhat resolved, but find ourselves living between this whole tension of it's all about God, and yet there's human responsibility as we respond to the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's where it begins. There's an overflow of praise as we understand who we are. Who are we, Door Creek Church? We're people who've been chosen by God Because he loved us and he chose us for a relationship. I'm talking about the God of the universe who made everything, who sustains it all, is interested in you and in me. What a beautiful truth that lies at the heart of our identity. We are God's children. Maybe that would be a good post-it to put on the mirror for tomorrow morning. It's who I am. God's son. God's daughter. Let that form our identity. All right, he goes on. Because he says he chose us to be holy and blameless, but we know that that's not who we are. We're not holy and blameless people. And so it moves from this choosing before to this redeeming and forgiveness now in Christ. That's where he goes in verses 7 and 8. Praising Jesus for freeing us and for forgiving us. So read 7 and 8 with me. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now the word redemption. When I was a kid, we used it for coupons, right? I don't think we use it for coupons anymore. You just, I don't know what we do with coupons. We use them, I guess. Redemption's a word we don't use a lot. It means to bring deliverance through the payment of a price. The word we use a lot is ransom. There's a kidnapping. There's a hostage. They demand a ransom. That ransom is usually what? Money. And when that money's received, if it goes well, the hostage is what? Released, freed. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served I came to serve, Mark 10, verse 45. And I came to give my life as a ransom for many. So, what's the payment that brings freedom? It's through his blood. Jesus paid the price that brings freedom. It's through his blood that we have forgiveness. And the freedom that's all wrapped into that word redemption is The same thing going on in what we have in the text here with the word forgiveness. Redemption and forgiveness are the same thing. We've been freed as we found forgiveness. We found forgiveness through Christ's blood. What does that mean? It means when Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins. He died for the penalty of our sins that the Bible says is death. 
Romans 6.23, the wages of death, the results of, uh, the, ra- the wages of sin is death. The results of our sin, the punishment for that, God says, is death. And Jesus says, I died for you. That's why I shed my blood, is to free you, to release you from the penalty and power of sin. And I've got to believe there's someone here today, some of you who, who you don't have that relationship with God, And so there's this weight of guilt and you don't know what to do with it. For a lot of people, it's just like Becky was talking about, the way you deal with it is do good stuff so that hopefully the weight of guilt will be offset by the weight of good things and the scale tips and I'm in. But the deal with that is I still got all this guilt. What do I do with it? Well, I remember feeling that weight of guilt. I was in junior high. And I was running with some kids because, you know, I was dealing with this whole identity thing. And I, I wanted these kids to like me, and these guys were bad. If you knew me in junior high, the last thing you'd say is, I bet you that guy's going to be a preacher one day. You're going to go, I think that guy's going to end up in jail one day. So these guys, they were in all kinds of stuff, and one of them was shoplifting. So I want to run with the guys, so I start shoplifting. And every time I stole something, it was as if there was a cinder block that was just placed on my chest. It's like, oh, that was the Holy Spirit in me convicting me. This isn't right. But with each act of stealing, there was another cinder block put on me. After three months, I couldn't take it anymore. This weight was just crushing me. I knew I needed to be freed from this. And I knew what I needed to do. I knew I needed to tell my parents. So I can still see it today. It was a long time ago. I was at the bottom of the stairs. My mom was on the front porch. There was these double doors that opened up to the front porch, and she was ironing clothes on the front porch. And I couldn't get myself to start the, 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 the discussion, to confess. Finally, I got there, and then it all flowed out. And I mean, I, I just told her everything that I'd ever stolen, all of it. And there was, in that confession... complete release. And what we have in the gospel, what we have in our identity, is we're people who've been released from the weight of our sin and our guilt. And if you don't know what to do with that guilt, come to Jesus. That's why he died, to pay for your sin. We've not only been released from the guilt of our sin, but from the power of sin. Where There's a point in our life before Christ we become controlled. We're, we're, we think we're free, but we're not. We're controlled by this stuff. And he breaks that. And most importantly, he frees us from the penalty of that sin, which is death. And that gives us life and freedom. This is who we are, Door Creek. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Adopted in love as his children. We are people who've been freed and forgiven. And that choosing and that forgiveness is at the heart of God's saving purposes. And that's how he ends this section. He ends praising God for revealing his plan in Christ and including us in that plan. So look at verses 9 and 10. And he made known to us the mystery of his will 
this mysterious will just speaks of something that previously had, had not been revealed yet. It had not been unfolded yet. It was a mystery. It hadn't been disclosed. Now it has. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Why he do it? He did it because he wanted to. It was according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. This plan is beginning, but it's still going to happen. It's going to happen in the future when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Okay, great. What's the plan? Well, here it is. Here it is. And this end of verse 10 is the best one-verse summary of the whole Bible. It's the best one-verse summary of all of history and where it's going. Here it is. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. What's that talking about? God's plan is to reunite all things back to where it was in the beginning when everything was right and everything was beautiful and everything was good with God and with each other in all of creation that Christ would be ruling as God's king over all and that all of us would be united under him. Under him. It's all going back to Christ. That's the plan that he's revealing to Paul and through Paul to us. Christ began to unfold this plan and it's going to be fulfilled when he comes back. And on that day, Philippians 2.10 tells us that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the king. He's the rightful ruler over all things. But there's going to be two different kinds of kneeling. And there's going to be two different kinds of confession. Everybody's going to acknowledge that that's who he is. But some, hopefully all of us this morning, will do it with tears of joy as we recognize that this is the one who died for us and we have been placing our trust in him alone. Others will fall to their knees and they'll recognize him as Lord, but it'll be to their eternal doom and sadness because God's going to basically give them what they've always wanted in life, to live life without God. And though they recognize Jesus for who he is finally, it'll be with regret for they know that they've rejected Christ and they will be given what they've always wanted, to do life without God forever. And so he's praising God that he's revealing his plan. His plan is that we don't deserve any of this mercy and grace, but God in his kindness and his love has chosen through Christ to bring us back to himself in a right relationship, the relationship we were created for. And he goes on to say in verses 11 and 13 that this is for everybody. It's not just for this special group here, the Jews, God's select people. It's for all people. So he starts out verse 11. He says, in him we, Paul's talking about himself as a Jew and all the other Jews. In him we were also chosen. But then notice in verse 13, what does he say? And you, he's speaking to the Gentiles, to people who aren't of Jewish descent. He said, you are included in Christ too. In other words, this is for everyone, this plan, for Jews and for Gentiles alike. 
And when you go through 11 through 14, what we have here then is the unfolding of this plan. How does it work? What does it look like? What's the progression here? And he goes back in verse 11 to where he'd been in verse 4. So read it with me. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, might live for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ. When were you included? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. What is that seal? It's the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. So here's how the plan works. It started before time. God choosing us, predestining us to be His children. Verse 11. Then what happens? Verse 13. He allows us to hear the word of truth, the gospel. And Romans 10 says this is how it works. When you hear the gospel... Faith is a result. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the good news. And so he says that we hear the word of truth. Now, this is exactly the point that we want to go back to in relationship to, okay, is this relationship all about God? Yes, it's all about God. It started before you and I ever existed It started all about his character, not my character. I don't deserve this. So does it have anything to do with me? Absolutely. Do I have a responsibility and a free choice to respond? Absolutely. Because what did he say? Having heard the word, they believed. That means when you hear the word, you receive the word. God helps you to receive the word, no doubt about it. When you hear the word, you believe the word. God helps you Believe it. But you still are making conscious choices. When Becky shared about that night, and there was a tug on her heart, she said. She was was talking about God's working in her heart. But there was a point where she had to say, am I going to do this or not? It's a mystery. And we want to hold on to both. Don't ever say it has nothing to do with God. It's all about your free, free will. That's not what the Bible teaches. And don't go on the other side and say, well, really, it's all about God, and he's wound it all up, and it's going to be what it's going to be, and we're really just a bunch of robots who do his bidding one way or the other, so it doesn't really matter. Don't go there. Hold the two up. It's the tension, and it's the mystery of a sovereign God who chooses us out of his grace before the foundation of the world and who calls us, like his son, to follow him. Hold on to that. So there's the choosing. Then there's the hearing of the word. Then there's the believing of the word. And then notice what it says here. Having believed. All right, see that? Having believed. We receive. This is in verse 13. Having believed, you're marked in him with a seal. That is, you receive the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, the spirit that the prophets promised, like Joel, the 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 spirit that Jesus promised when he said to his followers, it's better that I go so that you receive the spirit. 
And we notice that this spirit is called a seal. We're marked with this seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, what is that marked seal? Well, it's that seal that identifies us as we belong to God. We are his children. That's why Romans 8, verse 15 and 16 says, when the Holy Spirit comes into our heart, and when does it come? It comes when we believe. Sometimes there's people that teach that you get the Holy Spirit later. The scripture's really clear here. Having believed, we receive the Spirit. Do you see that in the texts? And when we receive the Spirit, he comes into our life, Paul says in Romans 8, and he bears witness of this. We belong to God. He's my Father. I've got a relationship. I know it. It's a mysterious spiritual knowing that I have that comes through the Spirit. And as I look at my life growing in holiness and righteousness, that reminds me, I've been chosen by God. So he seals us. He marks us. He identifies us as God's children. That seal is also a seal of authenticity. We're the real deal. What God's done us is real. We are his real children, his followers, by his grace. That seal also protects us. And that Holy Spirit is more than a seal that marks us. He is also a deposit that guarantees the future inheritance. That word deposit is the word for engagement ring. They still use it today in Greece. Same word, and it means an engagement ring. What is that engagement ring? It speaks of a relationship that we have now that's looking ahead to a relationship that's going to radically change when we are husband and wife. We have in the Spirit the first fruits of God's plan. What is His plan? To unite us back into this perfect relationship with God through Christ. Now we get the first fruits of it. We get the engagement ring. We're enjoying the relationship with Christ through the Spirit. One day, when Christ returns... It's going to be more than just a spiritual experience. We're going to trade in the eyes of faith for the eyes of sight. We're going to trade in these crummy bodies that are falling apart, at least mine is, and we're going to get resurrection bodies. Man, I hope nobody here is into reincarnation. There is nothing hopeful and promising about getting another rust bucket body. Resurrection's where it's at. Man, we need new models that live forever. And that's the promise. We got the down payment now. We got the engagement ring. The marriage with Christ is coming. Well, what happens next? Having received the promised Holy Spirit, we now are positioned to live for his glory. That's where it ends in verse 12, that we might be, that we might exist, that we might live our lives for the praise of his glory. That's where it ends in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Let me tell you two stories and we're done. The first one's about Bertha Adams. Bertha died at age 71, Easter Sunday, 1976, in West Palm Beach, Florida. When her body was discovered, she weighed 50 pounds. She died of malnutrition. Her house was just a complete disaster. When they asked the neighbors about Bertha, they said she would come door to door begging for food. And her, her clothes were just tattered rags. In the midst of all the mess, they found two keys. Two keys to safe deposit boxes. Imagine their surprise when they opened up those boxes and found 700 AT&T stocks. And get this, $800,000 in cash. 
and she died of malnutrition. She wasn't living in light of what she had. Paul says at the very beginning of this, praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have it all. Does our living today reflect that? Let me tell you a second story. William Randolph Hearst, newspaper magnate. Remember him, Patty Hearst's dad? (coughs) Really wealthy guy. Into collecting world treasures. So he's reading about this treasure, and he goes, I got to have it. So he gets his minions to start chasing it down. And he says, I don't care how far you have to chase. (coughs) I don't care what it costs. Get me that treasure. Well, finally, they come back after months and months of searching. They say, hey, boss, we got good news. We found it. It's going to be a really good deal. It's not going to cost you anything. He said, what are you talking about? He said, boss, you already own it. It's in one of your warehouses. Paul was so concerned that his friends would lose track of what they had. That someone could come into their life and say, you know what? You're restless. You're looking for something more in life. Well, Jesus is okay. But let me tell you about this. Door Creek Church, let us never find our identity anywhere else. And let our restlessness never take us to anyone else than God's Son, our Savior. And in Him, we have it all. And when it's rooted in Him, in Him, we will be a church that overflows to the praise of God. Not just as we come here, but as we go out and live to the praise of His glory. Let's close in prayer. (coughs) God, open our eyes to see the treasures that we have in your son. Forgive us for trying to find our identity in other things. And Lord, grow us as a people together as we understand that our identity must be rooted in Christ and then having that common rootedness that we might grow to be more beautifully united together, positioned to live to the praise of your glory. Lord, as our eyes and hearts are open to you and maybe someone here this morning for the first time, we pray that there would be a release of praise from our lives, not just in what we say, but in how we live. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.